Good morning, Church. My name is Evelyn Fisher, and I serve under the leadership of Tsidiso and Lebo in the Centurion Life Group. Our Bible reading this morning comes from Matthew 8, verses 1 and 4, as well as Matthew 5, verse 8. Matthew 8, verse 1 to 4, and Matthew 5, verse 8. It reads as follows. Matthew 8, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the word of God. Morning, everybody. Thank you, Evelyn. Tudiso, thanks uh, for those prayers earlier on. Just some housekeeping uh, before I pray. Uh, folks, it is so great to have this many people to gather together in this way. We quickly forget uh, what a blessing it is. Uh, now that we've been back a few Sundays, it'll help us a great deal if we can all try and come a little bit earlier, because what we're finding is there's a lot of congestion at the various um, check-in points. The check-in points are necessary and important. Um, so where you get your temperature scanned and you do your sanitizing and whatnot, uh, please try and come a bit earlier just so that we can get everybody through uh, so that we can sing God's praises together from 9.30. Uh, the, the singing is not to create ambiance while we chat outside. Uh, we want to come in and worship God together. So, so please try and come a little bit earlier just, just because we have to get through um, all the necessary uh, rigmarole so that we can come and be together and worship together, which is such a wonderful blessing. So please, if you could bear that in mind. Let me um, open in a word of prayer and then we'll come to this blessing. Heavenly Father, uh, as is the case, every week we come entitled to absolutely nothing, uh, but we come trusting in your compassion, your mercy, your grace. We come trusting in who you are and how you love to bless your people. And so we pray, Father, that by your Spirit you will allow us to see you this morning in the person of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as always, it's only in His name that we pray. Amen. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Martin Lloyd-Jones called this beatitude undoubtedly one of the greatest utterances to be found anywhere in the whole realm of Holy Scripture. 
And the man knew Holy Scripture. So it might be worth us paying attention to what he's saying. What makes Matthew 5 verse 8 one of the greatest utterances anywhere in the Bible? We're going to spend some time finding out. But before we get there, we just need to think again about the Beatitudes as a whole. The Beatitudes are a bit like a diamond and a mountain peak. So a little rock and a big rock. They're like a diamond. Because if you hold a diamond in your hand and you turn it over and over, this is a brilliant illustration because it's one we can all relate to. You have your diamond, and it's roughly this size, and you can turn it over and over in your hand and see the various facets, right? And each facet is slightly different. It refracts the light in a different way. But each facet is part of the one diamond. They all make up the same diamond. So it is with the Beatitudes. They are all different facets of the same blessing of God in our lives. They are different perspectives on the same reality of discipleship. They're all related. If you are meek, you will also be merciful. If you mourn your sin, you will also hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. Different perspectives on the same blessed reality. That's the little rock. Now the big one. We can read the Beatitudes as a parallel or a networked reality like a diamond, or we can read them as connected in a kind of a sequence. Uh, So the first three are about deprivation. They're about what we don't have. Poverty, meekness, mourning. Those are all forms of deprivation. They are like climbing up the one side of a mountain. The summit comes in that fourth blessing. Satisfaction. Those who don't have will be satisfied. And flowing down the other side of the mountain are the ways in which being satisfied by God and in God changes and transforms us into the merciful, into the pure, into the peacemaker. Those are two ways of thinking about how the Beatitudes relate to one another. If if those illustrations don't move you or they don't mean anything to you, the little rock and the big rock, the important thing that we all need to see is that the Beatitudes are connected. That's just the thing we want to see. Just that thing. They are connected. They're not isolated. They're connected. They all describe the one blessed reality of life under the gracious, loving, saving rule of King Jesus. And so now we come to the next in the series of blessings, the pure in heart. The blessing reserved for the pure in heart. Once again, as always, we have to define our terms. What do we mean when we talk about the heart? What is purity? What does it mean to see God? We need to define our terms. So let's start with the heart. Because that will also help us understand the concept of purity. The heart in the Jewish worldview, the ancient Jewish worldview, is not limited to emojis or to Valentine's Day. The heart is the whole interior life of the human being. And so it does include feelings. It's not less than feelings, but it's certainly more. It includes feelings, the mind, and the will. Emotion, cognition, volition. 
the feelings, the mind, and the will. The inside, the entire inside life of the human being, of the person. That's the heart in ancient Jewish understanding. That's what Jesus would have meant when he spoke about the heart. And he spoke about the heart a lot. He had a, an enormous amount to say about the heart. When we listen to him, we begin to understand that famous Christian maxim. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. In other words, the problem is inside us. Just listen to some of the teachings. So I'm going to give you a broad sweep, just an overview, a kind of whistle-stop tour of Jesus' teaching on the heart from Matthew's gospel. And it touches a whole range of different aspects of life, but it all is in some way related to the human heart. So uh, go with me. He has his teaching on sex and marriage. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. His teaching on money. Store up treasures in heaven, not on earth, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. His teaching on forgiveness. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. His teaching on the home of evil. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? The things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. These defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, out of the heart. He's teaching on where the devil attacks us. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. He's teaching on our relationship with God and where it's all gone wrong. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your heart. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see me with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Finally, he is teaching on his own heart. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. A whole wide range of teaching on a wide range of different aspects of life. But it's crystal clear that for Jesus, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Before anything manifests at the level of behavior, before anything manifests outside, and of course it does manifest outside, and we're not minimizing that, but before it manifests on the outside, any problem, any human problem, starts on the inside. In the human heart, in the interior life 
of individual human beings. Now, why would we take the time, as we have, to emphasize that, to point it out, and to really go into it? Because we as a culture simply do not believe that, as a wider culture. We simply do not believe that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. We believe the opposite. That was the whole message of our recent local government elections, right? The whole message was the problem is those guys over there. But if you come and join us, we have the answers. That's the whole message of conspiracy theories, which are constantly doing the rounds in every generation. So the problem is with oil company executives or with the royal family or with the KGB or Big Pharma or Bill Gates or the Chinese or the industrial military complex. Pick your theory. That's the whole problem with identity politics. That's the whole message of identity politics. The problem is with men. Or the problem is with women. Or the problem is with blacks. Or the problem is with whites. Here's one response to all of that. And I quote, If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. That's Nobel laureate Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he's just a dim echo of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the heart. And the problem, in the language of our passage, is that the human heart is impure. Now what does that mean? What does Jesus mean when he's talking about purity? What does he mean by purity? What does it mean to be impure? The biblical words for that cluster of ideas, purity, impure, pure, those words have their roots in metallurgy, the science of metals. And in that context, the context of metallurgy, pure means unalloyed, unmixed, undivided, uncorrupted, unpolluted. So I'll give you an example. In Revelation 21, we see the new Jerusalem described as a city of pure gold. That means the city is not gold-plated aluminium. It's not a gold alloy. The other stuff has been burnt off. The dross has been burnt away. This is the real thing. This is gold and only gold. Pure gold. So to have a pure heart is to have an undivided heart. To have a pure heart is to have a heart that is undivided in its devotion to the Lord. What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your heart. Not part of it, 
you know, the part that sort of comes to life on a Sunday morning. All of it. Total devotion. All of life. Everything you have, everything you are. Here's a paraphrase from J.C. Ryle. He says this, A man who is pure in heart is preeminently a man of one thing. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is pure, poor, whether he pleases man or gives offense, whether he is thought wise or foolish, whether he gets blame or praise, he cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing. And that one thing is God's glory. Purity of heart is undivided devotion to God. A division in the heart, a division in our ultimate devotion or loyalty can result in a secondary division, another kind of division, a division between the inner person and the outer person, a division between who you project to the world and who you really are. I've said a number of times in the series that each blessing in Matthew 5 has a corresponding woe or curse, if you like, in Matthew 23. The woe that matches today's blessing is this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. The striking thing is that the word for clean is our word for pure. It's the same word in the original. Jesus says, you pretend to be pure. You pretend to be pure on the outside, but inside you are divided, you are corrupted, you are polluted. Make the inside pure first and the outside will follow not outside in inside out so purity of heart is in the first place undivided devotion to God and in the second place integrity between who you are on the outside and who you are on the inside is that you Because this blessing, this morning's blessing, is reserved for those who are pure in heart. Is that you? Are you pure in heart? Are you undivided in your devotion to the Lord? Are you a person of one thing? Do you burn for one thing? Are you one person? What you are on the outside for others to see, if they could see inside, would they see the same person? Those are searching questions. And I ask those awkward questions because the stakes are so incredibly high. Remember, the person who is pure in heart will see God. Let's just imagine we are pure in heart. What does that mean? What does it mean to see God? 
Because the Bible's clear teaching is that no one has ever seen him. And yet the promise of this blessing is that we will see him if we are the pure in heart. As always, as was the case in every other blessing we've, we've explored so far, this blessing is not yet. It's a future blessing. It's not yet, but there's also a now dimension to it. It reaches back into the present. This future blessing reaches back into our present reality. The Apostle Paul helps us. He, he writes it like this. For now, remember now, not yet. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then, not yet, we shall see face to face. Now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we, we shall see face to face. And he's talking about seeing God. In the end, we will see God face to face. That is a bliss that is impossible to describe. One of our church fathers with enormous powers of description, Leo the Great, he tried to describe it, and in the end, he could basically only repeat the language of the Bible, which says that it can't be described. So I've got a whole paragraph, description, which ends up being a non-description. But here we go. Great is the happiness, beloved, of him for whom so great a reward is prepared. How great the blessedness of seeing God. What mind can conceive? What tongue declare? And yet this shall ensue when man's nature is transformed so that no longer in a mirror nor in a riddle, but face to face it sees the very Godhead as he is, which no man can see. And through the unspeakable joy of eternal contemplation obtains that which eye has not yet seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man. Let me describe how many ways I cannot describe the blessing that waits for us who will see God. You will see him face to face. And this much we can say, you will see him face to face. You will see him. And that is the reason you were born. That is the purpose of your life. That is... Your meaning. You will, one day you will see God. And you will finally be home. Until that day, you will only see a reflection of Him. But you will still see Him in that reflection. Where do we see that reflection? Where do we taste this blessing that will be ours in its fullness on that day? Well, we see that reflection. One place we see it is in the world that he's created. In the same way that you see something of an artist in the paintings that she's painted. We see God in the world that he's made. If you have a Bible with you or Bible app, please open it to Psalm 19. Psalms are somewhere in the middle. 
of your Bible, Psalm 19. Psalm 19 has a lot to say about how we see God. And it opens like this. Psalm 19 verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sun, the moon, the stars tell us of God's greatness. Not in audible words, but by their beauty and by their power and by the way they rule over us so graciously. Their beauty speak speaks of his beauty their majesty his majesty their provision his provision so you can see god in the andromeda galaxy or you can see him in the brain of a fish i was chatting to a young lady in our church family perhaps she's here this morning i'm not sure Uh, she's studying physiology and she's studying the effects of water toxins on the brain of a certain species of fish. She was saying to me that the deeper she goes into science, the more she wants to worship God. To see the exquisite order of the minute details of the brain of a fish speaks to the glory of the one who made that fish. In the same way that the heavens declare the glory of God. The more we observe the world around us, and remember, that's all that science is. It can pretend to be all sorts of other things, but that's all it is. The more we observe the world around us, the more we are struck by the beauty of the creative genius that this world reveals. There's a whole branch of mathematics devoted to to understanding how even the most seemingly random and chaotic processes are ordered and patterned in some mysterious way. A whole branch of mathematics, thinking about that. How chaotic things, seemingly chaotic things like clouds, are still ordered and patterned in a mysterious way. To behold that mystery in awe is to see a reflection of God. To catch a glimpse of him. And what's true of maths and science is also true of art. Yehudi Menohin was one of the great violinists of the 20th century. He put it like this. Music creates order out of chaos. For rhythm imposes unanimity upon the divergent. Melody imposes continuity upon the disjointed. And harmony imposes compatibility upon the incongruous. What kind of creation allows us to do that? To take noise and make music. And we know the power that music has. It can reduce us to tears. What kind of creation allows us to do that? When we wonder at creation, creation itself is inviting us to take the next step and wonder at the Creator. Creation is inviting us to see God, the God who is reflected in all that he's made. Now, if you really want to see God's reflection in creation, look at the person next to you. Go ahead. It's a little disappointing, I know. We were gearing up and we were all ready to worship. And then I said, look at the person next to you. 
and it's fallen flat. We joke, but the pinnacle of God's creation, the place where you can see his reflection the clearest, is in the creature that bears that reflection. The creature that bears his image. And that's us. That's the person next to you, in front of you, behind you. That's every person. Every single person you encounter. Your boss. Now I've really ruined it. Especially for the church staff. The beggar you are going to see at the robot on the way home. If you want to see God, look at him. We see God in creation. We see him often with much greater clarity in his word. Psalm 19 goes on to say, look there, verse 7, goes on to say this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So there you have an Old Testament statement of what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. In other words, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And they shall see him in his word. Augustine, the great African church father, described the Bible as letters from the heavenly country. Isn't that great? Letters from the heavenly country. Occasionally I like to read, uh, and I'm sure some of you share the same hobby, I like to read autobiographies of prominent people, interesting people. So the last one I read was Alex Ferguson, uh, What Makes Him Tick. Some of you are sniggering because they lost so badly yesterday. What makes him tick? What was he thinking? How did he lead one of the most successful teams in history? And we might also ask, how, have the, how is it possible that they've imploded so badly ever since? Autobiographies, celebrity autobiographies are one thing. But imagine you had the autobiography of God himself. You do. It's called the Bible. And in the forward, he's dedicated it to you. That's what the Bible is. He wrote it for you so that you might see him. As I said, Psalm 19 is all about how we see God. It says we see him in creation. It says we see him in his word, in God's word. And then it ends with a strange reference to his king, seemingly out of nowhere. But it isn't so strange when we take the time to reflect on it. Because, of course, the Bible has a hero. All of creation has a hero. And that hero is a king, King Jesus. When Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, that'll be enough for us, what did he reply? Do you remember? He said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
to be in relationship with him, in his church, with his people, under his word, is to see God. But still only to see in part. Still only to see a reflection. Now why? Why would that be the case? Because Paul, who saw Jesus in all his glory on the Damascus Road, was the very same Paul who wrote to the Corinthians that we can only see God in part. Why? Firstly, and and quite obviously, because Jesus has ascended to his Father. His Father's right hand. He sits on the throne. He's no longer with us. And so we live by faith and not by the fullness of sight in this period until he returns. But secondly, and more importantly, if he were standing right in front of us, we would not see him as he truly is. Because our hearts are still divided. Because our hearts are not pure. As Leo went on to say, the brightness of the true light will not be able to be seen by unclean sight. The brightness of the true light will not be able to be seen by unclean sight. We cannot see God because our hearts are not pure. Do I need to convince you? Do I need to convince you that your heart is not pure? You should need no convincing. Your heart is divided and impure. If I need to convince you, that is the surest sign that you are blind and you will not see God. How can I be so sure of that? Because if you are confident of your purity, if you are certain of your sight, then you have no poverty of spirit. You are not mourning over your sin. There is no meekness in you. And therefore, your heart cannot be pure. Remember, the Beatitudes are connected. Little rock, big rock. All different facets on the one reality. If, on the other hand, you need no convincing of your impure heart, if you know that your heart is corrupt, polluted, divided in its loyalties, that is all the evidence you need to know that you will see God and that the blessing is yours. Now, how can that possibly be? If we're saying that we still have undivided, impure hearts, how is it that this blessing is ours? How can it be that we will see God? How does that follow? And this is where we get back to this morning's reading. Matthew chapter 8, if you want to turn there. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to see him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus, in this scene, Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is where we are in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the opening 
word in the Sermon on the Mount. In this scene, he's just finished the sermon. This is the very first thing he does. Is it an accident? I don't think so. This is the providence of God. The very first encounter he has after his sermon is with this leper. Now remember, leprosy is no ordinary disease in the life of Israel. The person who contracted leprosy was declared unclean. The unclean person was cut off from the presence of God and the rest of the community. They had to live outside the camp alone. And anyone who touched them would themselves be declared unclean. It was a kind of living death. While you waited for the disease to spread and finally end in physical death. The striking thing again about the word unclean in this account is that it's the very same word for pure or impure. It's the same word in the original. One commentator wrote this. Never was there a disease that so separated a victim from their fellows. Never has there been a condition that so illustrated the spiritual condition of humankind. For sin is a terrible disease that separates us from our fellows and from God. It spreads and it is fatal. There's more to this miracle than meets the eye at first. The leper approaches Jesus. He bows down. It's the word for worship. He calls him Lord. If we were trying to describe his posture, his disposition as he approaches the Lord Jesus, we might call it poverty of spirit. He has nothing. He comes only with his desperate, desperate need. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus does the unthinkable. He crosses a boundary that should not be crossed. He touches the leper. He touches him. This is a Jewish rabbi. He touches the leper. He associates in the most intimate way with the unclean. He crosses that boundary. He goes over to the other side, to the unclean side. He stands with the unclean. He says, I want you to be clean. But he doesn't just say it. This isn't just compassion. There's also power. He acts. Then the unthinkable happens. Instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the leper becomes clean. The story ends with proof for the keepers of the Mosaic Covenant, for the keepers of the law. One greater than Moses is here. The law has been fulfilled. Jesus has done what the law could never do. He has made the unclean clean. The law couldn't do that. He has made the impure pure. There's only one pure heart. One undivided, uncorrupted, unmixed, unpolluted heart. Only one. And it belongs to the Lord Jesus. But he gives it to you. He takes your dark and divided heart and you receive his undivided heart 
by his spirit so that the father can receive you on the basis of his pure heart. All that is how we see God now. Yes, in part, yes, as in a mirror, in a reflection, but nonetheless we see him. We see him. He reveals himself to us in his creation, in his word, supremely in his son, so that we can see him. It may be we can only see him in parts, as in a reflection, because our eyes are still obscured by the residue of sin, but we can still see him. We see him with the eyes of faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus makes possible now. That's the future blessing reaching back into our present. I want, to, I want you to see what happens at the end. So please turn with me. Sorry, this is the last passage we're going to. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. And I want you to turn there because I want us to see the details. 1 John chapter 3 and from verse 2. 1 John right at the end of the New Testament. Reads as follows. Beloved, we are God's children now. Remember now and not yet. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Not yet. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. In other words, our hearts will be pure. How will we know? Because we'll see him as he is. Truly. Fully. The immediate presence of Christ on that day, the intimate touch of Christ, if you like, will burn away any residual impurity in our hearts and we will be like him in perfect purity. And so we will see him as he truly is. But look at what comes next in verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who is waiting for the blessing of seeing God through the eyes of perfect purity, through the eyes of undivided loyalty, wants that now. That is a good and natural desire. We, we should want to see God, and we should want to see Him now. We want to experience it now. We have a growing appetite for God, and therefore a growing appetite for purity. Do you see our motivation you see the motivation for holiness, for purity? It's a desire for God. If you know that perfect purity will be yours as a free gift, you can begin to live in that purity now. The more you clean your lenses, the better you'll be able to see. The more you see God, the more you will want to see the more you'll give your heart to him. The more you give your heart to him, the more you'll see. 
the more you will want to see, the more blessed you will be, and on and on and on into eternity. My friends, we of the dark and divided hearts need to know this. We need to remember this day is coming. There's only one way to see God. Only one way. You need a pure heart. There's only one place to get a pure heart. Go to Jesus. Bow before Him. And say, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me pure. He is willing. And He can do what no amount of law-keeping could ever do. What no amount of self-cleansing could ever do. He cleans the inside of the cup. He will make you pure. And when you are pure, you will know the unspeakable blessing of seeing God.